Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 90 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is nighttime on Wednesday, September 12th, and we are back, baby! 90? 90? What is that from? That is so. This is we should we should test our listeners. I I will tell you that the actor slash senator Fred Dalton Thompson uh, is responsible for that line. Can you name the movie All in right. which Fred Dalton Thompson says "Nandi Nan O"? I certainly cannot, and I like to thank. Uh, it's definitely not Hunt for Red October. It's definitely not. No, uh, this <laughs> thing will get out of control. It will get out of control, and we'll be lucky to live through it. Now that is Hunt for Red October. Nice. Um, so, Bobby, uh, I'm back. Yeah, Steve, uh, what, I, missed, what, I missed you, buddy. What did I miss? What, what did I miss? <laughs> we got show title right there. Austin, Austin, Texas, my home sweet home. I want to give you a kiss. You're back. So you've been you've been traveling. You're a traveling man. Where in the world I'm have you been? I'm a traveling man. Let's see. So since since last we recorded, which by the way, just to to remind everybody, our last you know current events episode was so long ago. It was before Paul Manafort was a convicted felon. <laughs> Just saying. Um, it's, been a, it's been a while. We've had a couple of weeks of deep dive historical indeed. episodes. It got in nice. We got a lot of nice uh, feedback on that. But, 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 but some stuff's been happening. Stuff's been happening. So, so while all the stuff was happening, I was in Boston with Karen's parents. I was in Wayne Scott, New York at my friend Andrew Weller's house. Thank you, uh, Casa Weller by the sea. Um, we were in uh, at my parents' little upstate uh, house in Putnam Valley, New York with my sisters and their kids. Um, and then we spent the last week in uh, Lee, Massachusetts, in Western Massachusetts, in the Berkshires. Oh yeah, oh that's nice. Um, it was hilarious because you know the weather started out as unseasonably warm. It was like 85 one day. Yeah. Monday morning it was 52 and raining. <laughs> there you go. It's uh, this is a tough time of year. And speaking of that, we are mindful that right now a lot of listeners and friends are hunkering down for the onset of Hurricane Florence. For everybody, especially in the Carolinas and in uh, Virginia Georgia. and who might be in harm's way, yeah. stay safe. Uh, we're thinking about you, and hopefully uh, hopefully you can pass some of the time, especially if the power's out and it's not very fun. You know, you can you can see that it could be worse. You could be here and stuck in the room with us having to talk national security <laughs> all the time. Do, do you know that my very, very first semester as a law professor was a hurricane-infested semester? Oh, in Miami? So fall 2005 – um, was the worst hurricane, se- the worst Atlantic hurricane season on record, and Miami got four direct hits. Um, so I was, I, I got there just in time for Dennis, um, and then we also had Katrina, which you know obviously did far more damage to New Orleans, but actually beat up Miami pretty good and came out of nowhere yeah. be- you know, to Miami. Um, Rita, which was oh, the yeah. heaviest of the rainstorms, yeah. and really brought down all the trees. And then the worst of all of them was Wilma. Um, which was just a terrible storm. I remember the eye pass like just over my apartment in Coral Gables um, at like three in the morning, like 140 mile an hour winds. You were there, and, and the and the well, because there was no. I mean, where I was was not an evacuation zone. Like if you look at the Miami maps, right, right, yeah. I was inland enough. But the the building alarms, like you must evacuate. I'm like, I'm not going outside into 140 mile an hour winds. No, I think so. you'd just now be landing. But then we lost um, 18 days of school. Um, to Wilma, 
actually. We lost like two to Katrina, but 18 to Wilma. We didn't have power. I mean, it was really quite the experience. So hopefully, you know, I, I'm not optimistic this is going to be a dud, but hopefully it is. Yeah, no. I'm, so thoughts and prayers for everybody that's out there about to deal with that. Um, and apparently, I don't know if you know because you're just back in town, but we actually have a uh, – um, an emerging storm in the Gulf that's heading straight for Texas. That's, oh, good. It's uh, not yet a tropical depression, but it's accelerating, and we can expect certainly at least uh, some heavy rain soon. I mean, you know, it's Armageddon's coming. Thing. What can there I say? Um, um, all right, speaking of but, which. But global warming is a hoax. So so you tuned into this podcast not to listen to Bobby and me do weather forecasting <laughs> um, or to us try to sing, but rather to hear about national security news. And, Bobby, by my count, we have – 16 different topics to cover in our under an hour. Ha! Um, I ha at the under an hour piece of this. You know, norm- uh, normally, we go through a pretty good sort of table of contents to lay it out That would take the whole up. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, just, we'll just tell you ahead. we've got four major buckets. So the four major buckets of topics that we're going to run through pretty much in order is sort of Gitmo and military detention land, uh, the Supreme Court, Trumplandia, and then because I'm a Jeopardy fan, potpourri. Right? I'll the, take potpourri. I'll- I'll take potpourri for 1000 There you go. Can you place that one? No. All right. It's a Weird Al. I lo- oh, I lost on Jeopardy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, what I, that's what I thought that was. I was like, wait, is he quoting Weird Al to me? Yes, that's I am. Weird. Yes, I am. All right. So let's just um, – and then if you if we make it to the end, um, we might be forced to talk about football. Let's do it. Because all of my teams are – well, that's not true. Michigan beat Michigan and Miami both beat up on their you know terrible opponents over the weekend. But all of my my teams are underperforming. All right, so we'll have some good uh, frivolity at the end. Um, what should we start with then? Doe versus Mattis. Doe because <laughs> because of course it is. So the day we're back, of course, is. Well, let's let's reset the scene, sports no, fans. Let's just go fast. Like, All the we, needs- we could just record the same bit. So here's what happens: we say, "Well, this guy is still in military detention in Iraq, Bobby," and Bobby says, "Well, the parties have been working out a deal, Steve, and they're you know continuing to file these status reports with the judge, saying no need to rule on anything. We're still working out the terms by which Doe is released." But then today, dramatically. Another extension saying we're still working out the terms pursuant to which eventually, and apparently, reason, he'll the, be released. And so the only reason why I think this one is especially noteworthy is because tomorrow yeah. is the one-year anniversary of Doe's capture. Right. So as I mentioned on a tweet earlier, he's definitely going to be over the one-year mark. Although, as you, as you say, there's there's complexities as to how you count the, ta- the time involved here in terms of how long the government's been trying to hold him. Um, so no news. We don't have any insight of what's going on. I will say this. That the longer the negotiation period goes on, the more interesting it gets to speculate why, uh, what it is they're trying to pin down. It seems to me that it must be the case that they're trying to figure out um, a proper circumstance that's mutually agreeable where he's released into Saudi Arabia, almost certainly Saudi Arabia. I mean, maybe not, but if not that, something like it, where they're trying to get an agreement from a receiving state. Uh, this won't be, I think, a release into Syria anywhere after all, because that's what he's trying to avoid. And it's not clear what would be taking so long if if that weren't the issue. It's definitely not going to be bringing it back to the United States unless they surprise us with a, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> that yeah, would be a surprise. That would be a hell of a surprise. Um, it's either going to be the Saudis or some some third country that's going to take him. And they're just trying to work out a deal for how he'll be received into that state. What if Doe is indicted by the special counsel? Oh, sorry. What if? All right, we're done. Right. Um, so um, so it, another month. 
there is some interesting Gitmo stuff, though, and then and that's also a pivot to talk about yesterday's anniversary that really I think did not get that much attention. Um, no, that's right. And I want to say something about. Do that. I do let's, that first, or do you want to do the the news first? Uh, no, let's do the news and the military commission stuff first. All right. So so three quick pieces of military commission news. The first is I don't think we, I, I think we knew. I don't, actually I don't think we knew when last we sat down to record that it wasn't just the Nashiri case that was going to need a new judge. It was also the 9-11 case um, that Judge Pohl, the chief judge of the trial judiciary and the presiding judge in the 9-11 case, was also retiring. These guys are dropping like flies. So Pohl did two interesting things. First, I mean, obviously, in his capacity as chief judge, he had to identify a new judge to take over the 9-11 case. But then, Bobby, he also punted the government's motion for reconsideration of his major ruling suppressing the clean team statements. Which, you know, I still can't believe how little attention that got. And it's, it's a real sign of the times. And so the government, you know, we had, we had mentioned in our last current events episode that the government would surely pursue some appellate remedy. They actually first sought reconsideration. Right. And Paul basically said, hey, new guy. Yeah, exactly. Like, all right, uh, this is too, I tried to deal with it. It's too hot a potato. I'm out. Meanwhile, the whole fight apparently right now in the military commission with the new guy, Colonel Perella or Perea, I don't know if it's a, yeah. I don't know if it's an AO or not. But yeah. anyway, um, is whether he has to read the whole record. He's like, no, guys, I'll, I'll, I'm getting caught up. I'm reading, like, you know, this thing and that thing. Like, no, you have to read everything. It's like, yeah, do I really have to read everything? Oh, my God. It speaks um, volumes about the but here's craziness the, of Wait, this. but here's the best part. He's only going to be on the case for 11 months. That may be enough time to read the record. Right. And then we need another new judge. Right. Is that Why is that? Is I he, think because his retirement is coming up. Like It's almost why, like you might want to switch this into a system where you have full-time judges who have life tenure, who are not going anywhere, who can preside over the entire case. Bobby Chesney, bleeding heart liberal, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you. I, um, yeah, I will, I'll say it again because not everyone here has listened to all our prior episodes. <laughs> uh, I support the idea that military commissions exist. I think they have a proper role to play. I think they could have been employed here. If you could go back in time from the beginning to to align things differently in a functional way. If I could but, turn oh back. God. Time. Oh, no. <laughs> this is what happens. When, this is what happens when we record at night. Only one of us is drinking a beer right now. Yeah, only one of us has gotten about ten hours of sleep combined in the last six nights. <laughs> Touche. Anyways, um, I'm making assumptions here, by the way. Yes. Wait. About your sleep. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Okay. Um, your kids are younger. True. Yeah. All right. So, anyways, it's it's just yet Happy another. Happy birthday, month. Alice! By the way. Oh, kind of say I just came from her first volleyball game. Wow. They, so they all just digress on that briefly. So all these third grade teams, they've all got these. You know, the, the shirts are different colors, and they they use that as the hook for picking the team name. So if you your team had peach shirts, what would you go for your what's your name? The peach what? Um, Schnapps. Oh, that would have been good. That would have been a bold choice. Uh, no, they are third graders. They are the peach cobblers, my friend. That's pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good. So I've just been shouting, "Go cobblers!" All I have to say is, is I am I am so old that I remember when Karen babysat for you guys when Heather was pregnant with Alice. Yeah, that was uh, back in D.C. And our, that was when I was on the detention <laughs> policy task yeah, force. Yeah, hey, it's tying things together. It all goes back to get all it's all about fun. All right. Um, speaking of judges, though, uh, something crazy happened. Someone was nominated to the CMCR. All right, so uh, Lisa Schenk. Um, tell us about Lisa. Tell Lisa, us about this situation. I, this is a great nominee. I mean, Lisa is a you know longtime military lawyer. Um, she has experience, I think, as a military judge. Yeah. She's on the faculty at GW Law now. Um, she'll be great. Uh, she's a civilian, so she has to be confirmed by the Senate. But not to be outdone, the Secretary of Defense also assigned 
three additional military officers back to the CMCR. Never mind that there is still this lingering question about whether CMCR judges are principal officers who need to be nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, even if they're already in the military. This is uh, setting up to be quite a time for the CMCR. It's almost like as soon as you got engaged in litigation on this, it's been a mess ever since. You, no, you've no, undone them. I, no, I, I will, I will, I will, I can't take credit for this. I think the CMCR has been a mess from the moment it was conceived. Interesting. But. Uh, but, but I digress. All right. Um, speaking of the CMCR, the currently constituted CMCR has still not delivered the long-awaited ruling about the abatement issue in Nishiri. It's really good. So, so the 10, or maybe it's right now, nine-layer dip of Nishiri is just sitting there getting cold on the counter, getting Moldy. to the point where no one wants to put a chip into it anymore. And there's a little mold on the surface. At a certain point, I wonder, for, for those— Don't you just throw it out? For those who are really <laughs> attached over, over these low these 17 years, really attached to the idea that the pathway to real justice in the 9-11 and other al-Qaeda attack cases that are processed, processed through the military commissions, at what point will those in that camp say, wait a minute, we're, we're not getting justice and there's no path forward that gets justice in the form of a verdict, let alone a punishment, uh, anytime in the foreseeable future? So I think this is a good segue to the piece that you wrote yesterday because I wrote an op-ed two years ago. Um, Two years ago, I can't do math. Yeah, two years ago, for the 15th anniversary of 9/11, okay. um, that try. You know, I'd written on prior anniversaries about lots of different, you know, sort of related topics and remembering the day and remembering where I was. And you know, I had a, a college classmate who was in the North Tower who died. Um, and I wrote an op-ed two years ago that was about sort of the military commissions from the perspective of the victims' families. And wholly apart from what you think of the legal issues in the military commissions, what you think of the procedural issues and snafus like the whole theory of justice is that you're supposed to deliver justice right and i just i don't i don't understand the story that is being told to the victims of these cases that they're better that that their better chance of obtaining measurable justice for their loved and lost ones is in the military commission as opposed to the article three courts well i think it's a path dependency thing right where where early on that's a story that it you know may be plausible and as the facts day by day get a little bit more inconsistent, you just get with deeper that, and deeper into but the. You, but you're already committed to a certain point, and at, and at a certain point, it's quite possible many people have sort of checked out of the whole idea and sort of categorize it as just perpetual pretrial detention, and that's that's what the the, the outcome is. Um, it's unfortunate, including especially for those who have blood on their hands, yeah. and there there are a number of them who do. Um, well, my my reflection, and, 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 and who would have nowhere near the, the claim to martyrdom. And, you know, sort of mistreatment at the hands of the United States if we had just gone the conventional route. Well, so the thing I reflected on on yesterday, on the 17th anniversary of 9-11, was something that I'd, I'd realized the night before. It just dawned on me how, how struck I was how little our national discourse these days, and I think it's a relatively recent phenomenon, still centrally focuses on the threat of terrorism and the policies and issues surrounding counterterrorism for a good, certainly for more than a decade, and then there's a there's a, a fading out that kind of occurs. But I'd say for about 15 years, that's been the story. And there have been lots of other stories to be sure, but it's always been there in the first order set of things we nationally angst over, and it's really kind of faded out. I'm not saying that people in in many quarters aren't still very focused on it, but I'm saying it's been elbowed aside by a combination of Trumplandia and all that that entails, 
uh, new concerns, emergent concerns, uh, the return of great power conflict, so the Russians, the Chinese, um, technology concerns, so surveillance, cybersecurity especially, um, concerns about you know disinformation, and all these things have combined with an effect that I think has been driven by the Islamic State, where the Islamic State actually, when it surged into a very successful territory controlling position, reactivated and, and revived uh, fears of terrorism, yep. concern for very good reason, focus on policy for very good reason, but precisely because they held territory. And now we have, we're nearing the process of, of cracking their control over their last bit of territory. There's still going to be a threat, but there is this sense that, oh, that problem was crazy scary for a while, but now it seems kind of tamped down, even though it's still there as a threat. Um, it feels in a way little bit taken care of, I think, to people who don't follow this closely, when, of course, it's not taken care of, and none of the policies have really changed in significant ways. I think also that both Obama and Trump, in their different ways, have contributed to the tamping down of attention to this topic. And remember, this this topic used to not be the central thing pre-9-11, and, and so it's been more of a reversion to the mean. Obama did it by st- staying out of detention, out of new detention cases, and forswearing it, and still absolutely engaging in the aggressive use of lethal force, but in ways that were a little bit hard for the public to come to grips with. And then Trump's done his contribution to it by maintaining all of Obama's policies. It's just con- Trump, Obama, there's a lot of continuity on terrorism policy, except transparency. And he's rolled back a lot of the transparency. Which only makes it harder to have a public conversation about these Exactly. Issues. So it's just, it's kind of, for the time being, uh, pushed back down beneath the surface. And I would say that I think it's more likely than not that we're going to have at some point um, some kind of event that yeah. will cause people to then look back and say, oh gosh, there for a while there, we, for some reason, we're all obsessing over Omarosa and we were obsessing over Trump's latest provocations. And, and the Trump administration, I think there's a real risk that it's going to find itself really sorry that it hasn't been more serious and more engaged on these issues. So listen, I, I, I agree with every word of that. I thought it was a fantastic piece. I think, you know, I hope everyone reads it. I, I, I actually think we have been blissfully lucky that this administration has not yet faced a true crisis of any kind. And I don't just mean, you know, it doesn't have to be man-made. I mean, we could see what happens with Florence. He he hasn't had to make the critical and difficult call yet. That's right. As far as we know. I mean, and insofar as he has, I mean, I don't think Puerto Rico is in the spe- – I don't, I don't think the track record on Puerto Rico is quite the A-pluses no. that he's claimed. Right. So, so, so literally and figuratively, right. a disaster. Exactly so. so. So I think we have been lucky and fortunate that we have not yet had to experience what the combination of malevolence and incompetence that has marked this administration means for us. This connects something – we were going to talk about Trumplandia later, but yeah. I think right here we should mention the Bob Woodward book. Indeed. Fear. I think some listeners are sitting there thinking, well, one reason maybe we haven't had that is because there are people around the president who maybe are doing things you would normally be pretty uncomfortable with somebody doing around the president. Like, the, ano- to- like the anonymous op-ed writer? Maybe the anonymous op-ed writer. One wonders, you know. You just totally ruined our run of show, Bob. Uh, yeah, but we never gave it, so we oh, can't really it. Yeah. Um, um, so I think we should talk about that right yeah. now. So this, maybe, maybe one reason we haven't had this total... Fiasco is because is, of the is because of the steady state uh, conspiracy. The steady state conspiracy. I mean, so what do you think? Like, there there are those, of course. We're not, I don't care to engage the silliness about it. it's treason. Blah blah blah. Um, By the way, just kind of, kind of, yeah. sorry. Yeah, you no. won't engage it. I will. It's not treason because we're not at war with whoever the hell we're supposed to be at war with. And even better, it's not seditious conspiracy. Um, <laughs> right. Some I won't even name the moron, but some moron from Judicial Watch 
wrote an op-ed that Fox News published about how it's seditious conspiracy. No, it's, where's the levying war? Uh, you don't, no, you actually don't need levying war. The problem is, is that they quoted the seditious conspiracy statute and took out the word by force. Yeah, well, there's no force, obviously. Like, no, the whole, the whole idea that, look, basically there's an attempt that's entirely political, not legal or policy in nature. It's just a political attempt to, you know, criticize this this ostensible, who knows if it's even true, this ostensible figure that's supposedly, you know, acting to undermine listen, the president's I, I believe, agenda. Listen, I, I believe that the, that the New York Times would not have published, like, I believe the New York Times knows a, who this is, and B, that it's someone who they were willing to publish under these circumstances. So I actually believe this person exists. I believe they exist. Oh, I, I didn't mean to suggest it's yeah. made up. Obviously, the person exists, and it's somebody at some level. But there's a wide range of possibilities. Of course there it, is. There's immediately this parlor game. People are like, well, was it Mike Pence? No, 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 no. I seriously doubt it's anyone at that level. The other thing is, I mean, I, I want to say two, three quick things about the op-ed. First, nothing about the op-ed is illegal. And all this talk about referring it to DOJ is freaking preposterous. If Sarah Sanders can't tell you what crime was committed by the author of the op-ed, that's there's a reason for that. Well, don't look to Sarah Sanders for But if insight. no one in the White House or the, I mean right, there's, right. Okay. again, they're not this isn't actually a legal argument. Okay. Um thing number 2 about the anonymous op-ed. Um I do not I don't think it told us all that much that at least people of my ilk right. didn't already know. Everybody understands that there are right. there are relatively there there are some seriously responsible yes. people in in a whole spectrum of yes. of people of varying degrees of willingness to sort of set aside their policy preferences and such and those who are less willing to do that. No surprise that there are some yes. people including relatively senior people okay. who are probably so now, so doing now, what they can to, to So now I'm going to so now I'm going to piss you off. Bring, um, bring it. Right, because now we're about to have the, a fight that we've had about 10 times already on this podcast. The author of the anonymous op-ed is a coward. Um, and not only are they a coward... Um, oh, I, but, don't, I don't disagree no, necessarily no, 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 with no, that. No, 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 don't worry. Yeah. All right. Don't worry. Yeah, you got to try harder to piss me off. It's coming. Oh, great. Um, the author of the anonymous op-ed is not only a coward, but it, it, he or she is a coward who seems both more interested in being able to say five years from now, no, 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 I resisted, yeah. right, than actually thwart things. And oh, by the way, has no problem with all of the pretty, in my view, horrible stuff that the Trump administration is doing as a policy matter. Um, if you really believe the things that you write in the op-ed to such a point that you actually think you as a government official should write this op-ed, yeah, no, then the op-ed should have your name on it, and it shouldn't be an op-ed. It should be an open letter or testimony to the House and Senate Judiciary Committees. I, I want so badly to have something we can really argue about, but this won't be it. I, I have in yes, there, no, no, without, I haven't, well, I, me, without knowing the particular position which could modify the fact pattern yeah. in a meaningful way to me, but just in general, like median relatively senior deputy yeah. or assistant level, secretary level. Um, that that right, makes if it's, the deputy, sense. If, it, if it's the deputy undersecretary of state for Near yeah, Eastern Affairs. Absolutely. Now, as you know from our prior fights, and I'm sure you were thinking about our fights over Dan Coates, there are certain positions. For example, Jim Mattis, I do not want Jim Mattis going anywhere no matter what. And I don't want Dan Coates going anywhere no matter what yeah, either. But, but, but in, in, in setting that aside, I agree that this is not okay to sort of anonymously paper your record it just all it really does is fuel the deep state conspiracy theories, and it doesn't actually advance the ball in any soothing way. That's my problem. So my problem is if you're actually trying to accomplish something, this isn't it. All this op-ed accomplishes is firing up the people who already can't stand Trump and think all these things are true, and convincing his supporters that there really is a deep state out to get him. Exactly. No, right? I, I'm a, I'm on all fours with okay. you on that. But wait, wait, wait. I, I so 
the, the Mattis Coates thing is part one of the thing you're going to disagree with. Okay. Right? Part two is it's the same crap that Ben Sass and Jeff Flake are pulling. Right? It's the, I'm going to tweet my tisking at President Trump, but not actually use my authority to do anything about okay, it. Okay, so obviously, we know from past experience, I completely disagree <laughs> I with you there. Um, and there's a world of difference. What makes this action cowardly and problematic is just what you said, which is it's anonymous and can't really be explained other than to say right. five years from now, CYA. ah, I was not down with this. Well, as opposed to all Jeff Flake's self-serving tweets, like, this is bad. Shame on us. We can do better, America. Uh, you know, I know that you don't have any any tolerance and don't find For any empty value. Pablum. I I know you feel that way about this. And and I know you, know you do I feel differently. All right. So uh, so see so Supra. Go. All right. <laughs> um, one last thought about this though, because this will this will come back to something we're going to talk about later. Um, I said there's no way the op-ed author committed a crime. There's one exception, which is if by some chance the author of the op-ed is a unif- is a is a commissioned officer in the United States military. And here's a chance to introduce my favorite terrible provision of the Uniform Code of Military yeah, Justice, yeah. Article 88. So talk about Article 88. I share your opinion as to some applications, not others. So Article 88, contempt toward officials. Any commissioned officer who uses contemptuous words, contemptuous words, Bobby, yes. against the president, the vice president, Congress, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Military Department, the Secretary of Homeland Security, or the <laughs> governor or legislature of any state, commonwealth, or Wait, possession. Wait, I want in on this. I didn't know DHS was in on that. Oh, why, yeah. why is DHS in on that? Bobby, come on. I, no, but, seriously, why? <laughs> what is... So, 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 sorry. Okay, there probably is... So, let me, let me take one shot. I, here's a legitimate reason. Do you know who DHS supervises? Is this... Uh, the Coast Guard. Oh yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Right, that's, so that's, a, that's, so that's a, why, okay. That's why you're, that, there you go. Right, there there are circumstances in which the Secretary of Homeland Security actually is the, you know, senior official of the Coast Guard. I still think that's baloney. Okay, so a couple of things. One, uh, uh, has this been challenged for vagueness? Because you tell me, what's the definitional boundary of contempt? Contemptuous words. And then the second question <laughs> is: Is truth a defense? No. So I, I the vagueness challenges, to my understanding, have thus far been um, rejected. Um, mostly on the theory that the military is allowed to do stuff that nobody right. else is. And, and by the way, let me be clear. I think for for serving, right? For well, serving so, no, officers. So here we go. Yeah, for okay, serving so, officers, there's a disciplinary reason for this. I, I, this is where this is where I'm going. All right. Um, the uh, truth is not a defense because contempt. Truthful, you know, truthful words can still be contemptuous. Oh, I know, I know. I was I was kind of teasing. But but you put your finger on it. What if the commissioned officer speaking the, who thus spake contempt? Right? Um, is retired. Exactly so. Gosh, well, it could come up. And there is some, I believe, but very little examples of trying to haul or hauling a retired commissioned officer into the system to face court martial for an article for an article 88 violation. Funny, you should mention that, Bobby. Tell me, do you know something about this, Steve? Well, it, there there may be a, a forthcoming cert petition to be filed in the Supreme Court, I don't know, on Monday, assuming, you know, hurricanes don't interfere. Yeah, yeah. Um about whether the military has the constitutional authority to court martial retirees. So, you know, I, I'm a pretty I, big... I, you know, hypothetically. Yeah. No, and you, so obviously you're involved in this, I gather. I actually only learned this moments ago. Uh, I am I am, I am counsel of record on said hypothetical petition. So what has this person allegedly said contemptuously and who was... No, it no, about? so this is not an Article 88 case. So, oh, so, okay. So, so oh, our, okay. our, our client... Um, the, the, the case is not... I mean, the case is, is actually not that 
compelling um, factually, right? Which is um, our guy basically got drunk and committed a sexual assault. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's no. not. I, I think I can say this without being unethical. Like, I don't think he's the most sympathetic. I mean, here, I'll say it. That's a grossly unsympathetic client. Um, you don't go. have to comment because it's your client. Done. Um, but but he was, but but the events took place three months after he retired from active duty. It took place in a private bar. Right. Um, the victim was not a service member. Right. Right. And so, and he was nevertheless court-martialed. Um, and so we're basically saying, hey, um, it's true that military retirees are theoretically subject to recall, but actually, you know, very, very few in reality. I mean, Bobby, do you know how many retired military officers there are or military personnel there are in the United States? Oh, there's a load of them. I can't imagine what the number is. Two million. Yeah. Um, retired as opposed to discharged. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the question is, can any of the two million military retirees be court-martialed at any time for any offense up to and including their death? So I think your petition raising this non non contempt statute charge context it's interesting and I can imagine it, I can imagine being sympathetic to it I'd want to spend some time thinking about it but I will say this if you change the fact pattern yeah. and make it the same situation except that the charge is is, is speaking contemptuously yep. contemptuously of a, of an officer or the DHS secretary <laughs> <laughs> under sorry Kirsten Nielsen I mean no no disrespect but no, no but if an eighty but, if an eighty five year old no right? I know no, right right so. The, the point being, there is a First Amendment interest in, the, in that circumstance sure. that adds a great deal of weight, combined with the vagueness of the very idea sure. of contempt, core political speech, all these things combined to make me think that whatever else may be true more generally about uh, recall and court-martial yeah. should not be the case. In our, and I think, uh, subject to maybe reconsidering it if I pondered it a little bit more, but my off-the-cuff reaction is unconstitutional is how I'd go with that. So here's so the problem is is that I, I mean there are there are authors who have argued that retirees should only be subject to court martial for specific offenses, um, right? Much along the lines that you suggested, yep. um, and that one of the offenses for which retirees should not be subject to court martial is Article eighty eight. Yeah, absolutely. The problem is that the Supreme Court historically has not drawn offense to off- like those kinds mm-hmm. of distinctions, right? The Supreme Court has focused on status as the sine qua non of whether you can be subject to military jurisdiction. And so what we argue in the cert petition, or or what we will argue in the cert petition when it's filed on Monday, although it's already at the printer, so, you know. Yeah. Um, do you, by the way, do you think, so a lot of the, a lot of the arguments for having this special military yeah. disciplinary-based jurisdiction is, is derived historically over long periods of time and tradition when we did not maintain standing armies on a large, large scale like we do today, where so many people in our society actually have this character about them who are no longer in service but once were. So it's, it, it, it's certainly true that I think there are some anachronisms built into the model. Um, actually, the retired list doesn't date to the founding. The retired list dates to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, not surprisingly. But still, we had decades and decades, generations, whole lives lived without a standing army for the most that's part. Right. No, that's right. That's right. Or not, well, with the standing army of sorts, but nothing like the establishment no, no. The, the number listen, The number of retirees has doubled since Vietnam. Yeah. It, was, it was barely one million at the end of the Vietnam War. But the other thing that I think is relevant here, and I, I don't mean to go too hard into the weeds, is one of the things that's happened over the last half century is the retired list is no longer where we go to augment the active duty forces, right? Now we have these reserve components. Right. We have, you know, very, very well-trained, well-maintained, high-functioning reserve components. And reservists cannot be tried for any offense they commit while they're theoretically subject to activation. Um, they can only right, so tra- what's the logic of saying the retirees can't? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a holdover. I, it's, I, it's, I think it's, it's vestigial. Back, um, I do too. So, you know, 
Are, are you saying you think our cert petition has a chance? I certainly think it's worthy of further scrutiny. Hey, there friends. you go. So um, keep your eyes peeled for Larrabee versus the United States coming to a Supreme Court docket near you. So we really did blow a hole in, in our original plan for really the show. Where do, how do we circle back? Is it to Speaking of the Supreme Court. So, so let me do two quick additional cert petition updates, and then we want to talk a little bit about the Kavanaugh confirmation yeah. hearing. Um, and then we'll, since we did Trumplandia, we'll finish with other after Good. after after Kavanaugh. So two other quick cert petition updates. One, we've talked before about the cross-border shooting cases. Um, mm-hmm. My case, in which I'm counsel records Hernandez too, that's scheduled for the Supreme Court's long conference on September 24th. While we were away, um, the defendant in the Ninth Circuit case, the one that created the circuit split, filed his own cert petition. Um, and he raised two questions. The first is the Bivens question, that is, should a court blah, 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 yeah. recognize Bivens? But the second is the merits of the Fourth Amendment issue, oh. um, right? Which is, does the guy, you know, does the Fourth Amendment really mean that this guy doesn't get qualified immunity for shooting someone who the Supreme Court has never said has constitutional rights? Um, it occurs to me, so in this overall litigation, are you going to be able to draw in, there's, there's this, a, a lot of ferment, yes. scholarly ferment on qualified immunity yes. right now, including a lot of uh, a lot of folks I think of as some of our leading lights of conservative yes. legal thought. Are you it, expecting to get some no. amicus? No? No, because there, there, <laughs> no. there are a couple of much better vehicles for that. Right. Um, this is not a great case, f- not not because it's like unsympathetic. This is just, there are other better vehicles uh, you know what? Some other time we will talk about how it's very interesting that all of a sudden the conservatives and libertarians have jumped on the the anti-qualified immunity bandwagon. I know some folks who have been there for a while. Well, don't you want company? I would love company, but don't, it, it don't would, criticize the latecomers. Be glad they're there. I would like the latecomers to acknowledge the early comers. Not me, but like Steve Reinhardt, right? I mean, like Reinhardt, you know, spent decades writing about how stupid the Supreme Court's qualified immunity jurisprudence was, and he gets vilified all the time for being this crazy activist judge. Are you saying he's right? Um, in this context, like that's that's all I'm saying. Yeah, all right, all right I get you. So um, anyway, so the what's interesting about the the petition is our case. Hernandez doesn't raise the Fourth Amendment question because the Fifth Circuit just threw it out on Bivens. Right, right. And right. so the court now has an interesting, you know, sort of um, posture question. Well, it should certainly take the Bivens question, and why not throw in the Fourth Amendment as well? But but there's no reason not to take the Bivens question right. just because it might also take the Fourth. So now we'll see what happens, right? Because now they've got a circuit split. They've got two petitions that actually each each petition raises a question the other doesn't. So the Ninth Circuit petition raises the Fourth Amendment merits question. Our petition raises a question about the Westfall Act that the Ninth Circuit petition doesn't raise. Either, either I, I say consolidate, right? Take yeah, or, or take them both and argue them the same day. Yeah, and, and, then, that, and there's then a lot sure of ways happens. to work that, yeah. Anyway, we'll see what happens. And then we also, Bobby, because, you know, when I go on vacation, I don't go on vacation. Yeah, what, what kind of thing? <laughs> this was no vacation, no, sir. Yeah. No vacation at all. Talk to Karen about that. Um, so we also filed this petition um, last Friday, although it was docketed, I think, yesterday in the burn pit cases, which we've talked about before, um, where the Fourth Circuit threw out these tort suits against private military contractors arising out of the disposal of hazardous waste in burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan on the basis of the political question doctrine. Oh, that's um, right up your alley. And so we filed a cert petition saying, wait a second, this is not a political, you know, uh, does the political question doctrine really bar private tort suits against private military contractors? This seems odd. Well, you wrote how many petitions while you're on vacation? Or were party to? Two and a half. So while you're doing that, yeah. I was watching Mamma Mia 2 yeah. and Crazy Rich Asians. And which, and, one, I was, and which one of us is the happier for it? Oh, that's a no-brainer. And I was really hoping you would have spent some of your vacation time watching these movies so we could do I good I watched reviews. Moana four times. Hey, that you know what? Moana's good. 
Moana is good. Moana, Mo, Moana is really good. Here's the problem with Moana. Once, oh, wait, wait, fighting words. You said no, no, you were gonna piss me off. No, no, now no. you're about to do it. Once you once you hear the Hamilton and Moana, you can't unhear it. But is that a bad thing? I mean, it's it's kind of nice to pick up the the Lin Manuel Miranda ness of some of the songs. Yeah, and try to figure out like what is it about that that melody that and like that the has, timber, right? Yeah, yeah, what is it yeah. that he's doing there? That, yeah. And which. Can you can you actually track it to another use? So Karen and I sat down and like you know matched Moana songs to Hamilton songs. That's awesome. Anyway, that's very cool. Um, See, that's great. I think that's wonderful. There you go. But so the you know the old line that um, George Washington says to John Adams upon Adams's swearing in as president, right? right? Go ahead. And now I am fairly out, and now you are fairly in. See which of us is the happier, the happier. Yeah. right? So uh, see which of us is the happier. I don't think there's any, any doubt we got the better of this deal. All right. Um, but also while I was on vacation, the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for our mutual friend and America's favorite something these days, Brett Kavanaugh, took place. It was really something. You know, originally I vowed to pay no attention if, could, if I could work? possibly, but not at all. And I, <laughs> I ended up I ended up listening to – Lawfare did a really cool thing, which they sometimes yeah. do in these longer hearings – They'll, I don't know quite how we pull it off, but sometimes we'll get people to painstakingly chop down the audio to just, for the most part, the stuff you need to hear. And they did one that was kind of focused on security-type issues, and it had a lot of other stuff in it. It had it had all the uh, the special counsel and Humphrey. The I, I don't think any hearing has ever had Humphrey's executor referenced more often. Uh, hum- so Humphrey's it, it's, it's, it's been a great, you know, 1935 is having a comeback. It, I'm telling you. But, it, you know, it was... In some ways, it was it was fascinating to listen to, but in other ways, it was pretty damn painful. So I want to talk about that too. But I I have one of my one of I, I think one of my great tweets of all time um, that I think will has has flown under the radar. Oh, was, <laughs> an underappreciated tweet. Yes, I don't remember if it was the day Kennedy retired or if it was the day Kavanaugh was nominated. But the tweet was "Party like it's 1935." Oh, very nice. I know. I, I, respect. I know. Respect. And it got no love. All right, uh, I, I hadn't noticed that at the time, but actually, I got to say, I, I am. It might have been. Too, I, did, I was under. I was unsure how you were going to deliver on that promise. It, it, That's it, good. It was, it was might have been too calm inside baseball. Yeah, yeah. So, so listen. I mean, you and I come down, I think, in different places about Judge Kavanaugh's views on the law, yeah. about a lot of the opinions that you know occupy the space. Um, Clearly, right? right? Like, I, I have no expectation that you would want Brett as much as you like him personally. I know yeah. you don't want him to be a justice. And you know I like him personally and yeah. think he should be a justice. And, and, and so we disagree. But but there's other stuff to talk about. Well, about no, and, but, hold on, but I want to say, and, and unlike many of my friends on the left, I don't think there's any question that he is tremendously qualified um, to be a Supreme Court justice, even yeah. though, you know, if I had my druthers, he wouldn't be at the top of my yeah. list. Yeah, I think it's, it, it doesn't... It's preposterous to argue he's not qualified right. in the abstract. Right. He's obviously as well qualified as any number so, of you know judges right. who people of different sides don't agree with. So I don't want to get into the weeds of all of the sniping that's going on sure. on the internet. I just want to make sort of two big this picture points. This show is above that sort of tomfoolery. Usually. And, and good use of tomfoolery. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no more tomfoolery. No more ballyhoo. Um <laughs> Do you know what movie that's from? I have no idea. Goodwill Hunting. Um, oh, really? Yes. Uh, how, about, the, how about them apples? Indeed. Um, Touche. All right. Um, <laughs> I got a number. Um, <laughs> all right. So, so I just want to make two meta points that I don't necessarily think you'll disagree with me about. Whatever you think of Judge Kavanaugh, um, I think the hearings in Toto were a pretty. Uh, 
I think very few entities covered themselves in glory um, during the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. I think we've gotten to the point with the confirmation process for for the limited number of really high stakes yeah. visible to outsiders, like Supreme Court and maybe DC Circuit. Yeah, but really, you know, especially the court ones, where whatever values it's serving, it's. I'm, I'm actually not sure what value it's really well, serving. I th- I th- so here's the thing. I think the Senate instead. So I think when it's when when there's divided government, there's immense value, right? Because like for example, if the a Democratic Senate is confirming a Republican Secretary of State, right. there's value, right. right? Oh yeah, no, the the, the confirmation um, requirement itself obviously has tremendous. Right. It, it's a central feature of our separated powers. When there's divided government, right. no, but I mean like the substantive things that are said, the exchanges, because the nominees right. cannot and will not. Commit if they if they're at all well prepared and Brad was extremely well prepared they're not going to if in barring mistake or error or cracking under the pressure they're not going to say something that's particularly significant that's surprising well, that but, we don't already know but about but so them. here's where I'm going with this and this maybe you do disagree with me so I actually think the no one covered themselves in glory let me quickly run through the three big players here right so Republicans. The Republicans in the Senate look like the only thing they care about is getting Brett on the court by a date certain, and nothing else matters, right? Um, Democrats, you're, you're saying that because they're not using this as an occasion to force change or, or policy shifts for no, Trump no, otherwise? No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not beating that old yeah. horse. No, no, I'm okay. just talking about the speed with which this is all happening. Yeah. Well, we all understand the game there, right? If they don't get it done before the election, might not get it done. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, and they probably will, but they might not. So I disagree, right? Because even if the Dem- even if the Republicans lose control of the Senate um, in November, they're lame duck until January. And I really wouldn't put it past Mitch McConnell to say, "Listen, we're still here till January 3rd, right?" So I think that's I think that's overstated. I think what they are worried about is the open seat becoming an issue that could cost them. The yeah, Senate. I, I think it's a combination of these things. Okay, yeah. um, but therefore, the fact that the National Archives and Records Administration says we can't have these files prepared till mid-October is no never mind to Chuck Grassley, right? I don't think that's an especially good look. Um, the Democrats, right? Um, rather than having a coherent, consistent theory of what a Supreme Court justice should look like, right? Look for every single opportunity to paint any one thing Brett said as disqualifying. Right, right? And, and they... they yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, now, mind you, I actually happen to agree with most of the areas where Democratic senators are worried about a Justice Kavanaugh, right? Like, I, I think they're right that a Justice Kavanaugh would have no trouble upholding a whole bunch of state anti-abortion laws that would actually make it harder and harder for women to vindicate the right recognized in Roe, right? I think a Justice Kavanaugh would be even more aggressive than Kennedy was on campaign finance law. I've written about how I think he'll be farther to the right on our issues, right? But that's not, like... That wasn't the story that was being told. The story that was being told is he's a liar. No, which is, I got to say, it's it's hard. So as you know, I, I consider him a friend, yeah. and we have. I've I known like to him consider him a friend. I, might, think, I might, think you do too. He might. No. He might not. Feel and, the same but way. I don't have quite the same <laughs> ideological opposition to him that you would. In fact, I you, don't have. You it. haven't spent years writing about how you know exactly. everything he writes. Is so wrong. so it's hard for me to sit there and watch someone I know to be a good and honest person being depicted as if. You know, as you just said, as if like, ah, the we've revealed that he's actually this craven liar. And I can just imagine people listening to this now saying like, what? The, the emails, the this and that and the other. So this goes There's to the a lot of room. 
lot of room for debate and discussion there. I get that. I understand that. But the idea that they've revealed certain, you know, hidden evil character traits of Brett Kavanaugh, I just won't accept that. No, no. I don't buy that for a second. I agree. But let me offer a narrative that you may not find quite as problematic, okay. right? Which is the third party that did not cover itself in glory here is the White House. Um, because had all this stuff come out, right, as opposed to playing these stupid privilege games, yeah. had all this stuff come out two months ago, not two months, I mean, yeah. he, Brett was nominated in July, right? Had all this stuff come out in early August, um, where there had been, you know, a couple of days of headlines about these emails, um, and apparently Kavanaugh thinking, John, you should be on the Ninth Circuit, um, right? Like, that would have been a thing, but you would have given the nominee time to, you know, process all of this, Right, time to prep for all of it. Yeah, no, they put him in a terrible spot by, terrible. by having this stuff sort of drop the no, last no, no. second. This is, they so, didn't ambush the Dems. No, they, they ambushed, ambushed their nominee. Brett. No, this is this is yeah. exactly my point, Bob. No, and, and no surprise that it's not being executed well. But so you no, know, but but my point here though is that I think, you know, we'll never know. But I think I think Judge Kavanaugh came across as more evasive and more sort of um, squirrely. Than he is because he was ambushed by his own party, right? By, by his own people. So while I agree, so there was obviously a lot of camera time and a lot of recorded time in which he's he's having defense with people. It's also the case that there there were a number of people that were doing their level best to make him out to be this this dirty, filthy liar and, that is and not I just who said, the guy. Wait, and, and I yeah. just said, I know, I know, I'm not, I know right? we're in agreement on this. So I think it's both the White House. And the way that some people chose to focus not yeah. on things that substantively made sense to try to yeah, draw yeah. out the de- like I thought all the extended discussions where they were trying to pin him down on just how open he is to keeping Humphrey's executor yeah. as a precedent and good distinct from that, um, bearing in mind that he was drawing a line between uh, uh, FTC like arrangement in which you have multiple uh, independent agency heads versus like CFPB, where you have the one, what did that mean for the special counsel? Those discussions were good and important discussions to have, and and I wish people could have stayed on those kinds of discussions yep. as rather opposed than the gotcha game. For the, for the gotcha game. No. Yep. So listen, I, this is why I say a pox on all your houses. Yeah, but, I'm with you. But perhaps I, I, I feel that that extends to the witness, right, as, as to the nominee a little bit more than perhaps you do. Yeah, um, certainly. Certainly the, more than I do, yeah. Um, on the War Powers point, I mean, I actually, I wasn't surprised by that much of what he said in our universe. Like, I think it's consistent with many things he's written. Yeah, he's got a pretty clear record yeah. on these issues. And I, I actually, were you not surprised that, I, I was not surprised, but maybe a little, I was interested in how clearly he embraced the idea that there is no commander-in-chief override yeah. except in very narrow, historically well-established circumstances. It was He basically said, look, uh, Marty Lederman, David Barron, they're right, and I've written about this before, and he really kind of took a strong position on that. That's pretty important, I think. I think that's right. Um, I, I, th- I certainly think that's right. I mean, I think he is, where where national security is concerned, he is willing to, I think, give Congress more role, right? right well, because, because he thinks that's part of the that's right. structure of that's the Constitution. Right. In, in this respect, for example, some people may be wondering, like, where is he going to drop on war powers in relation to, say, Clarence Thomas? I think far more of a separation of powers guy than Thomas. I think that's right. I, listen, I, I, think on, I think on many of the issues we care about, I see him very much in close alignment with the Chief Justice um, on mm-hmm. these questions. Yep. Um, I don't know that the chief is quite as hostile to international law. I don't know that the chief would be quite as deferential as Judge Kavanaugh is. But it's interesting you say that, and I don't, 
it's it occurs to me that I'm not sure I have a good read on, on Roberts on that. And I think that after all this time, we have less context for him than you might think we would. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would say, I mean, Medellin is a pretty hostile international opinion. There's still some things he's, he would, there's still some, some steps he wouldn't take in Medellin that he, t- that, that Kavanaugh takes in Albahani. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, leaving that aside, um, the one thing I would quibble with, and, I, and this is very much, I think, like, only I would quibble with this, but I'm going to quibble with it anyway. Um, which is, you know, he was asked at one point, I don't remember by who, whom, by whom, um, um, mm-hmm. for an example of a case where he stood up to the executive. And his example was Hamdan 2, uh, right? Hamdan 2 is this October 2012 panel opinion where um, Judge Kavanaugh, writing for, I think, a unanimous panel, throws out Hamdan's um, conviction for material support um, on the ground that the MCA itself didn't authorize um, uh, basically pre-MCA trials of non-international war crimes, basically a sort of statutory ex post facto type of argument. Um, and he says, look, there's an example. I ruled for this guy, you know, this guy who was not simple, like, you know, yeah. the least sympathetic defendant you can imagine. Oh, by the way, I actually can think of some less sympathetic defendants. Yeah, but you have to admit, like, he ruled for a Gitmo detainee Five. against the president who appointed him. And then, right, well, Well, no. actually, no, he's, no, he's no, no, Obama no, by Obama. then, right, yeah. But anyways, against the executive branch. That's fine. But as, I mean, I've had this fight with Peter Margulies before. Um, you can't talk about Hamdan 2 without talking about Albalua 1, where in his concurring opinion, Kavanaugh really runs away pretty quickly and pretty heavily. And I have argued, although I don't think everyone will agree with me, somewhat disingenuously from his opinion in Hamdan 2. So it's like, look at this thing I wrote over here, even though I actually ran away from it, you know, two years later. So the question arose in a context, and the context was that there were repeated efforts by Democratic senators to try to establish that he was going to be bought and paid for because Donald Trump gave him this nomination, which was a ridiculous I line of argument. A really, it was painful to listen to such silliness. Which is to say, I agree with you. That's I would, a ridiculous uh, yeah, exactly. And, and I, would, I would not ever believe that about a Democratic nominee or a Republican nominee, that thank you so much for nominating me. I will always rule in your favor on things that matter to you. But that's the context in which he was being asked to explain how, what, how can we trust that you're not bought and paid for. And one answer is to say, well, you know, I w- I've been nominated and confirmed before, and I didn't hesitate on cases that mattered to go against the executive branch. I think it's fair game. Yes, once in 12 years. But that wasn't the only example. Later. That was the example I that he was touting. But, well, it's the only example in a, in a national security case where he's well, ever sided, where he's ever ruled. Sure, but that's not the only, it, it's the only thing that matters to us, maybe, but that's yeah. not the only thing that right. matters to can other I, people. Can I push back on one thing you just said, though? So, I, listen, I completely agree, right? Uh, I've said this to anyone who will listen, that if a Trump's opinion gets to the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh is not going to be the fifth vote voting, voting in favor of President Trump. Um, do you really think that a reasonable observer could look at the president, I'm not talking about Judge Kavanaugh, right, could look at the president and think that knowing what Judge Kavanaugh has written and said about executive power played no role in the president's choice, not in him, wholly apart from, listen, wholly apart from whether the nominee feels in any way beholden to the, to the president yeah. who nominated but that, him. But that's not the line of attack. There were I, two listen, different I, lines of I, attack. I, I, compl- I completely, yeah. well, listen, let me, So let me engage with what you just wrong. said. It was wrong. I would not have impugned his character. And there were people that were trying to do I that, that, making cheap political points. I do think it is a perfectly, I, I think maybe Senator Booker asked this question this way. I think it is a perfectly fair question to ask the nominee whether you think a reasonable person might look at the president, right, and believe that this president chose you, at least in part based upon the views that you so eloquently and strongly hold. I don't think there's any doubt that for 
any nominee for any president that there are some set of issues that matter to them that they think the court has an effect on. And of course, they expect and hope that their nominee, often disappointing them, by the way, they expect and hope their nominee will, in fact, deliver the goods when that issue at some point comes up later on. Obviously, there were there were two lines of attack against Brett on this issue. One was the cheap shot, yeah, you were yeah. bought and paid for. I think we agree that was silly. Totally. There's a perfectly serious question that was aired at great length, sometimes quite responsibly. And, and it was very interesting to listen to the back and forth about it. And that's what all the Humphreys executor stuff was yep. and all the endless yep. back and forth. Um, it was never going to go very far because he's not going to say anything directly. But I felt like, for what it's worth, when I listened to those what, like six hours on the almost total on the Lawfare excerpts, maybe it was five hours total, that was probably 40 50% of the time. <laughs> I know, I know. And I felt like he was saying all that he could about how, A, he's certainly not already decided in a way and yeah. has has not already committed himself to the idea that a for-cause protection for a special counsel would be unconstitutional. And I felt like at many points he was doing his level best to say, folks, don't worry. I, special counsel, as long as it's ultimately removable, I, I think that's okay. I felt like he was saying, in effect, yes. that – Practical precedent over time, the course of precedent, the the gloss of history, as we said in our, our deep dive on, on uh, still seizure, is really important to him. It's not just originalism in text. There's the practical course of dealings, and I feel like he was saying the special counsel. I think we're talking past each other, right? Because I think because you're talking about Judge Kavanaugh, and I'm talking about President Trump, right? Sure. Like, I, well, I, look, I'm, I'm happy for you to disparage and speak contemptuously no, 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 of, of the commander in chief. No, 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 there, wait, wait, I, no, no. But I'm making a different point, though. My point is not about the nominee. My point is about the senators who are giving their advice and consent, right? Which is to say, wholly apart from how much you agree, and this goes back to our long-standing fight, right? Like about you know, should senators use their vote, right, to re- to register disagreement with President Trump? Oh, look, I think it's fine. And if you're saying that they are thinking that, look, Trump thinks this guy is a safe bet to in some way protect him from Mueller. If they think that, they should vote against him. I don't think they have good enough basis for it. And by the way, Trump is not going. To, I don't think they have a good enough basis to think that is, in fact, what Brett's going to do. Because no, I don't no, think no. that's what Brett's going to do. No, no, no. I agree that's not what Brett's going to do. I'm saying I think there's a perfectly good basis to conclude that that's why he was nominated. And I think that's the question. So if I'm a senator who does not feel beholden to my party and who wants to vote my conscience, I think it is a reasonable question to ask whether I think I should vote for a nominee when I reasonably believe that this person was nominated, not because he will— insulate the president, but because the president thought he would. That, that, I would think quite the contrary. If you believe that he is not going to insulate the president, which I don't think he would, yeah. um, the last thing you want to do is knock this guy out, and then you get some other nominee who may be even worse and maybe. maybe less reliable. Brett Kavanaugh is a person who's going to take the law seriously all the way down and a person of good character. And I don't think you're going to find him and I know you don't agree with that on some areas of law. We have substantive disagreements. Yes. But on this issue, I actually think that in, in terms of what the spectrum of realistic possibilities are, I mean, who do you think the next nominee is going to be? It's not going to be – it may be someone as, as similar to Brett on this issue as one might like, I, I think it but depends, it might not be. I think it would depend on what happens in the midterms. Um, like, I mean – well, no, as you said earlier, there'd be a lame duck session. I understand. And but- they would certainly run through whoever was nominated <laughs> next without doubt if they lost the Senate. Yeah. In fact, if Brett Kavanaugh goes down and the Dems take the Senate, the, the uh, lame duck Republican majority will put through anybody. And that's the Akil Amar argument in favor of Brett. Um, well, it's, 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 it's an argument against the argument that you're, you're making at least. I don't think the affirmative case has to rest on it, but you and I, of course, disagree about the affirmative yeah, case. Yeah, listen, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to beat this into the ground. I, I think I just, you know, 
when I'm not thinking about the politics of the moment and when I'm not thinking about like, you know, what the right answer is on the issue that I care about, I do try to spend some time thinking about like the long-term role of the courts in this in our constitutional system and how they are perceived. And no matter what side you're on and no matter what you think of Judge Kavanaugh, no matter what you think of the confirmation process, I don't think it was a good week for the Supreme Court. I, no, I, I agree completely you know, I, with that. I, I don't think the notion that the Supreme Court is this, you know, not infallible, but venerated institution that is as much as any institution can be above politics. Um, I think that took a beating last week. Certainly so. And I'm, I'm afraid that the confirmations in the high-profile cases just repeatedly are doing that. And we well, they're probably worse. will see more of this over I mean, time. They're getting worse. I mean, this wasn't even though well, the vote— tracking society, right? Yeah. I mean, even though the vote for, for Justice Gorsuch wasn't, you know, was was pretty partisan, the, the, the hearings weren't like this. Nah, I think there is there's something very different here. Yeah. And, and I agree with you completely on that. But of course, uh, here we are, these you know, pinhead academics up in our ivory tower wishing that it could function the way it ought to be. It's one of the many reasons I love you, buddy. Because I actually try to do litigation work or because I care about that. Because you yeah. care about these uh, yeah. these uh, higher ideals and, and you've got a lot of... Uh, Ooh, you, higher ideals. Higher Sorry. ideals? I, I, oh. I, 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 I feel a segue. Oh, I can't wait to hear what this is. Okay, hold on to that. Yeah. I was going to say, what you've just expressed is a really fine expression of civic virtue. Yeah. And that's what we're really lacking in a lot of our political discourse right now. And so even though you and I would cash it out in different ways on particular policy questions, I support you all the way in, in having that view. Well said, sir. Yes. All right. So higher ideals? Yes. So <laughs> there's a higher ideal that the United States was instrumental in cementing and promulgating in the middle of the 20th century. <laughs> and the higher ideal, you know where I'm going. Yeah, yeah, I got it now. And the higher ideal was the notion of individual criminal responsibility, um, even for war crimes, even for crimes against humanity, right? That, that, that um, those who are responsible for perpetuating aggressive, devastating wars should be brought to justice. Um, we led the way. I mean, I, I literally wrote my thesis in college about why the World War I war crimes trials, which no one knows about, collapsed. Um, and a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it was the intransigence and opposition of the U.S. government. Um, then after World War II, we lead the way in creating the ideal and the precedent for international criminal justice at Nuremberg, at Tokyo, maybe not quite as successfully. Um, you know, the Cold War gets in the way a bit. The U.S. is instrumental in creating the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. We are instrumental in creating the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Um, and then the International Criminal Court comes along, and we are instrumental in creating it. And then John it, Bolton happens. So it's, a, it's been a bete noir of, of John Bolton in particular, but also a, a substantial slice of the conservative uh, legal architecture. Actually, it's really beyond the legal architecture, right? It's, it's really a part of the conservative movement to be uh, allergic to international law. And this is nothing new. This goes back all the way to the Bricker Amendment, the 1950s. Yeah. In, it, it goes all the way back to the turn in international law away from state-to-state -state agreements about you know right. the, the sorts of things that traditionally have been covered by treaties and towards individual forms of responsibility. Which we were fine with when it wasn't us. Uh, well, there, you know, who's the we there, right? So there was always resistance. There's, there's always been right. a bifurcation within American politics How about, about this? this. The U.S. government, right, as an undifferentiated whole, um, was generally supportive of the project of international criminal justice until we got to a point where the U.S. was potentially— uh, here, Here's my mini-take on this. So the Roosevelt administration and then 
further the Truman administration, very much in the post-war period, supporting these types of frameworks. And in that time period, there was a vocal and partially successful conservative pushback that was embodied in the Bricker Amendment and all the things associated with that. The American Bar Association very associated with this. These are the reasons why the Genocide Convention and the ICCPR and all the rest, you know, don't become, don't become, uh, America doesn't become party to it until much later on. And then there's kind of a back and forth. You get this moment in the uh, in the beginning under Carter and then especially under Reagan, where human rights becomes more central to the ideological conflict with the Soviet Union, it becomes something we more clearly embrace as a tool of statecraft, right? Um, and that's followed by the Clinton administration, which brings the United States more formally into those longstanding treaties. We finally ratify them. And then meanwhile, the effort to develop the criminal justice mechanism, the ICC, the Clinton administration, all in that same spirit, very much, uh, you know, pushing that train down the tracks. But the opposition's still there, and yeah. and and then the opposition gains its ability to you know it, it comes back into office. Right. All right. So um, John Bolton. So Alex Whiten has a great piece on just jo- security about this. So John Bolton 1.0. This is when he was still deputy secretary of state. Mm-hmm. I think he had some senior whatever whatever his job you, was. At maybe you an ambassador at some point. Yeah. Maybe you an ambassador. Yeah. Something. Anyway, John Bolton 1.0 um, was sort of the figurehead for the opposition to the ICC in the Bush administration. And that led to, among other things, President Bush purporting to unsign the Rome Statute. Um, and it led to— You say purporting. All right. President Bush unsigning the Rome Statute. <laughs> bracket. Um, is that lawful under the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties? Close bracket. Okay. Better? Sure. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Um, and, um, and, and my favorite and your favorite, the con- Congress's passage in President Bush's signature of the American Service Members Protection Act of 2002. The, the Hague Invasion Act. The Hague Invasion Act, which I kid you not, it's dear a little, listeners. What is it? A little mini a- AUMF? It's a little mini AUMF. Should the ICC ever purport to exercise physical control over an American service member, the president is authorized to use force to retrieve them. And Go the, to the Hague. And the problem is? <laughs> <laughs> Other than Congress basically authorizing war against the Netherlands in perpetuity? Yeah, yeah. All right. Anyway, so that was 1.0. Um, earlier, oh, was it Monday? We got 2.0? Yeah. So, uh, you know, amidst all the important issues of the time, John Bolton has ta- – you got to hand it to him. He's got his opportunity – and he's not he's not going to miss his shot, right? This is, this is like this is my shot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying to continue our theme, right? So, but he, you know you know what the you know what the provocation is. Uh, unpack that. So the ICC chief prosecutor, I think I may be flubbing this. You talking about the Afghan investigation? Yes. Yeah, right? sure. The ICC announced that it's going to be looking into claims of atrocities, including claims of atrocities by the United States uh, during the combat operations in Afghanistan. Okay. So I, I there I want to separate out the question of whether there's anything sort of in the nature of a uh, Rubicon crossing with respect to opposition to the ICC. And my, my claim earlier, that elaborate you know, lead up was basically to say, look, this is all entirely par for the course for the, the half the country that doesn't like this stuff. It's a continuation. But that's he didn't just say like, well, you know, this is terrible and we're not going to put up with it and we're going to oppose this. Oh, no, he didn't. That's where, so the Rubicon crossing kind of element comes in with the details of what exactly he had to say. Right. So not only are we going to do everything possible to resist this, but hey, judges and prosecutors, we're going to use every financial tool within our toolbox to go after you, to impose sanctions. Maybe we'll freeze your accounts. And if you travel to the U.S., we will arrest you and charge you with crimes. Right. So what crime would that be, Steve? I have no bloody... The crime of, you know, pursuing international criminal justice. Conspiracy to prosecute war crimes. 
Even yeah, so that's, even, not, even, that's that's not a crime. No, no. So even if you uh, <laughs> right, so even if you kind of put the the best face on it and said that uh, there's some politically motivated, purely ideological investigation that's totally baloney, um, and they and they they purport to indict you know some number of U.S. officials or service members, um, the idea that it's actually that they've committed a crime by doing so, it's it's kind of hard for me to see what the possible hook is. But I, I have a theory about what they might be thinking about in the background. I remember what, Bolt, kidnapping. Bolt, no, no, I think what, well, if you're talking about them actually, I don't know what world it is that the ICC actually it's seizes not. somebody. Um, so I don't see that. that. That's a separate issue. If you actually take, if right. you do actually grab and insist on asserting custody. Unless someone just takes a very ill-timed vacation to Schreveninge. Well, it's right. So there, there is some sort of kidnapping type angle. I think what he has in mind under all this is the clues in the sanctions. Yeah. I think they're thinking about AIPA. They think they're thinking the president. AIPA. I knew you'd say that. The president might, if, if. Bolden could persuade him, issue an executive order, uh, declaring a national emergency vis-a-vis the ICC or, or some other, maybe tack it on to the existing national emergency vis-a-vis Afghanistan, since there's a nexus there, and then would directly issue sanctions or demand that that, uh, yeah. that the agencies issue sanctions against these officials under color of that. And that's where you get in pre-existing because we've got all these delegations I know, I know. handing the president these pre-delegated authorities. Right. Violation of IEPA decree. Backed by criminal law. All right, fine. You I'll, know, I'll, yeah, fine. So that's what I think he's talking about. So let me just say, so let me just say one last thing where I think, I don't know if you're going to, you know, jump across the table and strangle me or just make, make you know, make, make ugly Roll eyes. My eyes. Yeah. Um, it would be a whole lot richer if you were steadfastly committed on sovereigntist principles to uh, to oppose international criminal justice if you're if if in, instead you aggressively pursued domestic criminal justice and for a country that has as <laughs> my eyeballs my eyeballs are rolling a little right. bit and for a country that has as terribly weak a record of prosecuting its own war crimes, especially in this context, I think it takes a whole lot of chutzpah to say, "And boy, you better, you, you know, we're we're going to prosecute you for trying to prosecute our service members for things we wouldn't even really investigate." Yeah, that argument doesn't work for me. Main, I know. Uh, not not just in general, but because I don't think they're trying to build their case of opposition. Which, by the way, let me be clear: I think it's inc- this business about threatening these individuals is outrageous and the general project of trying to undermine it i think is largely ill-advised although i think there's something to be said for not having rose-colored glasses about the icc either i agree um which i know you, you i know you do um but i don't see I them i don't see nothing. them building their opposition to the icc on any sort of claim that these you know we're going to take care of this and oh, i agree no. so, so i don't so insofar as i say it would, I'd say it would sit better like I'll, yeah. I'll tell you, like you so, wouldn't mind as much if we had a, a right, aggressive right. internal. If, if we war said, if we said, hey, hey, the Hague, we got this, right? Yeah. And we actually—that's not the nature of their. I understand, yeah. but yeah. The, but my point is that, like, you know, I would feel, I would feel a lot more like I am not a you know pure multi you know international. Right, right. Like the only justice would be delivered from outside. Right. right. No. Well, that's good. I, on that, we agree. Hey, there um, we go. We found something. But I also think, by the way, I'm, I'm so pleased we found things to actually disagree about for once. Because too often we go through the whole show and it's just high fiving the whole time. And we, we portray it as a debate. And you know. no, it isn't. <laughs> yes, um, it is. No, it isn't. All right. Um, I will say this though. I, I don't like this. The- you know, maybe it's an accident. Maybe it's not. Actually, it's not an accident. Um, the theme that is coming out of this administration, Bobby, where you have you know basically prosecuting people who don't agree with you. Um, and, you know, I think the most alarming single thing that happened 
while we were on our little mini break um, was the president tweeting, you know, his hostility to the fact that the Justice Department has indicted two Republican congressmen oh, awful. this close to the election. That was awful. Right. Now that I mean, what what is there to say? That's res ipsa locator. No, no, but but I do think that these are all of a piece. It's Sarah Sanders saying we're gonna, you know, we're asking the Justice Department to look into whoever wrote the op-ed, right? John Bolton saying we're gonna prosecute, you know, ICC judges, you know, it's, right? It's I think all like uh, that element. That element, as distinct from the opposition to the ICC, yeah. but the individualization and the thread need of it's all part of the authoritarian baloney. That's but, going on. But here. it's an alarming trend to me. I mean, like now I, I, I should hope so, right? And and well. It would sure be nice if Congress were like, hey, no, people, no. But meanwhile, while this is going on, Congress is, you know, the Senate's confirming judges and the House. Did you see what the House Judiciary Committee was doing while this is going on? I can only imagine. They're having another meeting about Hillary's emails. <laughs> but the emails. So, all right. Listen, I think we'll save, we, we will save our, our other criminal justice developments for episode 91. Um, because it's late and, yep. you know, we're hot. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, so let's just skip ahead to frivolity. And, and we said we talk a little bit about football. Let's do it. Yeah, no, I'm not sure what's more depressing. Uh, All of the it. Other topics for this. Although I, I think there's hope for the Longhorns. So Really? Yeah. You, 28 so, to 21 over Tulsa is hope? You, I didn't say that was the reason for the hope. <laughs> I said there is hope. What, I didn't what, tell you where it was coming the, from. What in the first – so as between losing to a team without a head coach that was mired in scandal – and barely squeaking past a Conference USA team at home, where am I supposed to find hope? So it's not based on anything, <laughs> anything that happened in Maryland, and it's definitely not based on the second half of the Tulsa game. Um, no, it's, it's based on the young players, and it's based on the idea that it was always cartoony. Look, people jump on the, the UTE's back bandwagon. It happened last year. We, I you know. know. Every time we've done well early in the season, suddenly we show up in, like in the top 20 instantly, and right. then we revert to the fact that we're we're recovering from a long period of not being a competitive program. True. And that's not going to change overnight, notwithstanding all the, the hoopla that surrounded Tom Herman. Now, he's he's made it a little bit worse. Under, he's in a tough spot because his job is to sell hope, and so he has, but that's set us up for expectations we gotta that have some, not been delivered. We've got to beat somebody we're not supposed to beat. No, that's that's right. Look, I think that all this prediction about hope will be tested. Obviously, it's proof and, will be and so, so, so there are three college football teams I follow closely, right? There's Texas, there's Miami, and there's Michigan. And they all have the same problem. Um, Miami had an embarrassing first week loss. Yeah. Embarrassing. Um, Michigan, I mean, you want to talk about someone who isn't beating anybody who he's not supposed to. I mean, look at Jim Harbaugh's record since he got to Ann Arbor. Yeah, you know, it, early on, it seemed pretty impressive. He turned the program around recruiting-wise. But, you know, the whole recruiting game is simultaneously both so critical and, and you can't not be good at recruiting. Right. And yet it becomes the basis for all these hopes that are completely far-fetched because yeah. high school kids may or may not right. turn into top college pros. Right, They're so too my, young at that stage so to my, know in most cases. So my college teams went O for the first weekend. So I was like, all right, you know what? The Giants. The Giants will take care of me. Saquon Barkley, save me. Saquon, Saquon Barkley. Barkley will save me. He looks all right. <sighs> Look, he's, he's only one man. Listen, I, I think Jacksonville's very good. I mean, I think that yeah. by the, I, I think Jacksonville's yeah. probably a playoff team, and that by the oh, end of the season, oh, no question, and that yeah. by the end of the season, a fifteen to ten loss to Jacksonville is not going to look that bad. But man, there was you know, there, there was a lot of the old Giants in that game. Is it uh, is is it time for Eli to go? I, 
you know, I didn't. Eli didn't play that. Other than the other than the like backbreaking pick six, which is of course an Eli staple. Um, <laughs> How was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? He didn't look that bad, but I, you know, I, yeah. I mean, who's gonna play quarterback instead of him? No, that's right. So I, I, the Giants looked okay. The, the Cowboys looked terrible. Yes, the Cowboys yes. have had this fire sale, and it's yet another year of coaching mediocrity and and even Ezekiel Elliott, what's he going to do right. when there's no reason to think that the passing right. game right. is going when anywhere? You put, when you put eight guys in the box. Eight guys in the box. Right. There's nothing that guy Although can do. I, They're I just going to wear him out. I have to say, I do I do enjoy Des Bryant's live-tweeting Cowboys games, being yeah. like, hey, I, y'all. <laughs> don't, have a, don't have a lot of patience for that guy. I mean, By the way, you know the Giants come to Texas in, on, twice this month? Uh, they're playing the Texans. Too? They, 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 they they go to Dallas, yeah. and then the following week they go to Houston. So the only thing that surprised me, I thought you know, granted they were playing the Patriots, but I, I thought the Texans would do better. Well, and I think they will. Like yeah. Sean Watson, I think is gonna he's gonna need a little time to get back to speed. I think they're the team for Texas to to hang on. So I'm predicting for you that the Longhorns are gonna are gonna turn it around. They've got a tough stretch in front of them though. I think actually they're gonna beat USC this weekend. I think it's gonna be pretty hard for them to beat. My TCU Horn Frogs, which I also love because I went there. Uh, and by the way, I'm calling now. TCU is going to beat Ohio State on Saturday night. That'd be nice. That'd be. I know you'd enjoy that, uh, Mr. Michigan. I expected more enthusiasm from you. Um, I just, you know, I I want a te- I want a team I can root for, and right. none of these teams are doing it for me. Well, the the, the Horns are going to get closer by the end of the season, but this isn't supposed to be the season. Although people want it to be, where we're contending, we'll get there. Um, we'll see. Um, all right. So, anything else you want? Uh, you want a prediction for Saturday night, Texas USC? Uh, yeah. What do you, you want? To put numbers on that. I think USC thirty-seven, Texas twenty-four. Mm, no, no, no. That's 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 wrong. It's <laughs> uh, Texas. I, I think it's actually going to be relatively low scoring. I think Texas, uh, Texas twenty-seven, USC seventeen. Wow. Strong defensive showing in heavy rain. That'll make the difference. Oh, there you go. You heard it here first. All right. So listen, we're back. We're better than ever. We're going to have another current events episode. Hopefully not till next week, though. Yes. (laughs) Um, But, you know, follow us on Twitter, NSL Podcast. Follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney. Follow me at Steve underscore Vladek. And we will talk to you soon. Stay safe out there. Adios.